Let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to that passage in 1 John. If you were just joining us, we have been in a series on first, in 1 John, and we have remained in that series uh, throughout Advent. Advent is a Latin word, or comes from a Latin word, that comes from a Greek word called parousia, and it's the word that it means coming or arrival of a dignitary, and it is the word that is used there in verse 28, right at the end. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Here John talks about the advent, the arrival, the parousia of Jesus. It's the arrival of a dignitary. And he wants us to ask the question, in what disposition will we be in when he appears? How will we meet his coming? Let me pray for us as we consider that this morning. Lord, hard as it is to believe sometimes, we do indeed confess that you could come back at any moment. And so we pray that you would use this time to ready us and that we may even be more ready leaving than when we came. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, Burnt is a 2015 drama played by uh, America's new Hollywood darling, it seems, um, Bradley Cooper. His name is Adam Jones, and he is a chef who is on the rebound. He has totally self-sabotaged his own career as one of the top chefs in France, and he is trying to make a comeback. The way that he's going to do that is by starting a restaurant in London, and from there he is after the coveted third Michelin star. For those of you who don't know, a Michelin star uh, is an award that is given to restaurants of the highest caliber in the world. Uh, And only the highest caliber receive one Michelin star, And you have to be absolutely exceptional, the best of the best, to have three Michelin stars. Adam Jones has received two Michelin stars in the past, and now he's going after the third. In this new restaurant, everything that he does, all the preparation, all the hard work, all the ingredients, and the excellence is all done in seeking this third Michelin star. But here's the thing about Michelin stars. When the reviewers come, they come unannounced. They come whenever. It could be lunch, it could be dinner, and they actually come in anonymity. They don't say that they're coming or who they are, but there are certain tell signs maybe that give it away. So you have to be ready for them to come at any time. Well, The reviewers finally do come to Adam Jones's new restaurant, but they come at the worst possible time. See, Jones has a history of drug addiction, which has gotten him in deep with 
some drug dealers. Uh, They come one night, take him away, rough him up. The next morning, he is beat to a pulp, cracked ribs and the like. He's rushed off to the hospital, and it's there at the hospital, in the waiting room, just enough time to clean himself up, that he gets the call that the reviewers are in his restaurant. He rushes back. They frantically try to put the kitchen together. He's trying to hold it together, and they send out the food. They just get it out, and then the food is sent back. It's the worst possible thing that you could have happen. For a reviewer to send your food back, they said it was too spicy and unedible. That that does not bode well for getting a Michelin star, much less three of them. And so overcome with shame, Jones leaves the kitchen. He walks around that night in a drunken stupor, contemplates suicide uh, twice, once jumping off a bridge. He walks into another competitor's kitchen. He puts a plastic bag over his head and seals it. The competitor has to rip it off. But he wants to be done, to medicate, to be finished, because... The judgment had come, and he had fallen short. And the only thing he feels is overcome with shame. Psychologist Edward Tiber says that to suffer shame is to feel that the true self, with all its defects, is exposed, naked and vulnerable to the damning judgment and criticism of others. The true self, is exposed, naked and vulnerable, to the damning judgment and criticism of others. And that's exactly how Adam Jones felt. Naked, vulnerable, judged. So he wasn't ready. You know, a lot of us, I think, that is the picture that we have, maybe, of Jesus' return. And it's why a lot of us don't long for it. it The Bible says that when Jesus comes, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. In Luke 12, 2 and 3, it says that there is nothing covered up that will be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. In fact, that which was done in the darkness will be shouted from the rooftops. There is going to be an unveiling a nakedness on every human being, and a judgment. And so it makes sense that we might feel that when Jesus comes, we want to hide, we want to run, that we would feel totally exposed, vulnerable, and ashamed. I wonder if that's how you feel about the coming of Jesus. Somewhere inside you. I wonder if that's what all the distractions and the hiding are all about. Well, there is another way, you know. There's another disposition that you can have. John talks about it there in verse 28. He says that we can have confidence. 
Look at verse 28 again. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That there is a way to meet the coming of Christ, not in shame, but in confidence. And how do we do it? John says, very simple, abide in him. What does that look like? What does it even mean? Well, there are three ways, I think, in this text that that John spells out what abiding in him looks like and what it means. First, to abide in him is to abide in the apostles' message. Look at verse 24. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The way that you abide in God and the Son and in the Father is to abide in what you heard from the beginning. With the words from the beginning, we are taken back to the first words of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen, which our eyes have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. Remember, John is writing, and he is saying that the message that he presents is an eyewitness account. It's that which we have seen and handled and touched. It's an eyewitness account about whom? About Jesus. See, Jesus was very strategic. He called followers, which we call disciples, around himself. He taught them daily, and then he sent them out, and he authorized them to proclaim who he is and what he did and its significance. We call them apostles because he sent them out. The apostolic message is an eyewitness account of Jesus. And he says that you need to let that message abide in you if you are going to abide in the Father and in the Son. And what is that message all about? Well, verse 2, it's about the life that was manifest, which we have seen, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The message that the apostles present is first and foremost the message of eternal life, which is really the message of another's life, the life of Jesus Christ for you and in you. That's the message that they proclaim. It could be summarized like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's that message that combats our shame. How? Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, and she's become something of a public intellectual. She studied for over a decade the topic of shame. And she says that shame is, she defines shame like this, shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. And the message of eternal life, it combats our shame because it tells us that we are loved and that we belong. It tells us that we are loved for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he sent his son into the world to die for us, that we are loved and that we belong, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be eternally rejected, should not be eternally abandoned, but should be eternally embraced. That's the message of eternal life, and it combats our shame. The only time I had ever been to California before coming out to interview at this church was when I was 17, and I went to Mount Shasta, um, very much like the Central Coast here. Not really. I thought I knew California. Very different. I was at Mount Shasta, and I was at a camp there, and part of the camp we went on a river rafting tour. Uh, and we were there on this river rafting tour, and there was a place where we could go cliff dive. And so that sounded fun to me. Uh, I was uh, 17 and a little bit more adventurous and risky at that point in my life. So I climbed up the cliff, and, um, and I jumped in. Now, the water in this river was already freezing cold. And the place where I jumped in was completely in the shade. So I jump into this place that is completely in the shade. I get back in our raft, and I'm waiting for the other people to jump. And I'm just sitting there in the shade, and I am freezing. Well, all of a sudden, like, my teeth start chattering, and they won't stop. And then my, my body actually starts shaking, and it won't stop. And the counselor and the guide, they soon figured out that I, I was actually going into hypothermia. So they start going down the river a little bit, and they pull over to the side, and there was, and all the people kind of, they took my life vest off, and they all started to hug me, and then they laid me on this really hot rock, and they like started laying on me and covering me, um, which is really an amazing feeling. <laughs> you should try it sometime. Just fake hypothermia. Uh, but but uh, in that moment, I went from feeling very, Exposed, vulnerable, naked, and scared to feeling warm and embraced and protected and covered. That's what the message of eternal life does to us. When we are shaking with shame, vulnerable and isolated, the, mess, the message of eternal life, and it comes and it embraces you and it covers you. And it warms your soul. It says that you are mine and you belong and you will be mine forever and ever and ever. Should not perish, but should have eternal life. The message of eternal life combats our shame because it tells us that we are loved and we belong. And the message of eternal life, it combats our shame because the, it is a promise and not a demand. Uh, in interviews, one of the things that Brene Brown says often is that if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. To feel ashamed is to feel the weight of judgment come over you. And we all know that feeling. That feeling of being not enough. Not enough as a father or a mother. Not enough as a lover and a spouse. Not enough as a friend. Not enough as a student or a teacher. 
Not enough as an employer or an employee. Not enough as a parishioner or a pastor. Not enough. And we all know that feeling. To feel that is to feel shame. It's to feel like we don't measure up. Don't measure up to what? To all the standards. To all the standards and the laws and the rules that wag their fingers at us. Including God's law. But all the other laws that are created and imposed. Laws like be prettier, be smarter, be calmer, be cleaner, be more organized, be more environmental, be more, I love this one, carefree. How am I supposed to be more carefree with all these laws over me all the time? Be everything to everyone all the time. Anyone feel like that? And anyone feel like you fail? Like no matter how hard you try, it's just not that you don't do enough. It's just not that you, you can't reach there because you, you miss uh, a, a couple tricks. It's that you aren't enough to ever be able to fulfill that. That's shame. That's shame. It's, it's the voices that we hear all around, the voice inside our heads. And most of the time, that voice is coming from yourself the loudest. I once heard it said like this. We should all over ourselves, and we feel shame. We feel shame. The message of eternal life is not primarily a law. It's not a demand. It's not do this and you will live. It's a promise. And this is the promise, verse 25, that he made to us, eternal life. And so when you are weighed down with should-haves and could-haves and would-haves, the promise comes and says to you, you can rest in Jesus, who did, who is for you. You can rest in the eternal life that he gives. So the first thing that we have to do if we want to meet The coming of Christ with confidence is to actually abide in this message, this promise that comes from the apostles. When the guilt and the fear and the shame set in, and when we feel like running and hiding and distracting and avoiding, let these words wash over you. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You want to know how to meet the coming of Jesus with confidence. Abide in the apostles' message. That's the first thing. But the second thing that we have to do is we have to abide in the baptized community. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 is a very interesting verse. It says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. The anointing that you received abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, the anointing, I argued last week, for those of you who are here, I believe that the most most likely thing that John is talking about there is he's talking about the reception of the Holy Spirit, a reception which is everywhere in the New Testament linked to baptism in some way, in some, some form. And so uh, John is talking about the, the, the reception of the Spirit that's associated with baptism. 
And he says that for those who have received the Spirit in baptism, that they have no need for anyone to teach them. Okay. So I was contemplating verse 27 this week, and then for whatever reason, I started thinking about my job security, and I started thinking about not mentioning this verse. Because John says that for those who have received the Spirit, they have no need for anyone to teach them. <laughs> this, uh, verse 27, it either, it either puts me out of a job or makes my job a lot easier, and I'm hoping for the latter. I'm not going to lie. But really, what does John mean here? That you have no need for anyone to teach you. I mean, does John mean that you no longer have any need for experts? That you no longer have any need for teachers? That because you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can guide you into all truth, and therefore uh, you are uh, you don't you don't need uh, any kind of experts or teachers or things like that in in the Christian community anymore. I mean, a lot of people have approached me, whether or not they're reflecting on this verse or not, um, a lot of people have approached me that way. I uh, say, I, I don't really need to hear from you what the Bible says about sexuality or the meaning of the church or church discipline or, uh, or salvation and where it's found or baptism in the Lord's Supper. I don't need to hear from you about any of those things, because I have the Spirit, and I know God's telling me that this is okay, that I'm right, and God has given me liberty to do this. And I don't really care what you say the Bible says about divorce, for instance, or human sexuality. And, uh, and is, is that what John's saying? I mean, he says that you don't have any need for anyone to teach you, but, but then again, what is John doing, if not teaching, by writing to this church? And how would this gel with his first point, how would it, the, with the first point that we noted, how would it, it gel with the fact that in verse 24, he tells us to abide in the apostles' teaching? And what about all the other New Testament texts that talk about pastor teachers and elders who teach? So I don't think John means, whatever John means, he does not mean in verse 27 that the guiding work of the Holy Spirit can be separated from the apostle's message or isolated from the apostle's message or contradict the apostle's message. So why does John say you have no need for anyone to teach you? Well, I think the answer is actually in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is written to a people who are in exile. They're under the curse of God for rebelling against God. They've been sent off into Babylon. And one of the major reasons that they are in exile is because all their leaders have gone bad. The king went bad. The priests have gone bad. The elders have gone bad. The fathers have gone bad. Everybody's gone bad. And when, when, when your leaders go bad, you have no hope. You're done. And so there was a proverb that they used to say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers did something and now the children are paying for it. That's the point. 
Your leaders did something, and now your children are paying for it, and now those who follow are paying for it, that you are totally at the whim of your leaders. But Jeremiah says that days are coming. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when no longer will it be said the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And one of the things that will entail is this, that no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. What is Jeremiah's point? In context, his point is this. There is going to be a time coming when no longer are the people of God completely under and determined by the morality, the accuracy, uh, sincerity of their leaders, that actually God will send his spirit and that spirit will lead the people into all truth. And even when the leaders go astray, the people have a moral compass that will guide them, an intuition toward the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I mean, look at the context. We have to remember that. Verse 26, the verse right before this verse John says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now, if you were here last week, you know what he's talking about. John is writing in a context where there was a group of people who started denying the fundamental truths about Jesus, that he is fully God, that he is fully man, and that he's the only Savior of humanity. And those people denying Jesus went out from us. These are the people that he's talking about, and he's writing in reference to them. And he says, yes, they went out from us, but then there's a contrast, verse 27. But you, the anointing that you have received, but the anointing you have received from him abides in you. Now, it's really easy to read you here as singular, me, individual, but I don't think John means that. The you is plural. The anointing that y'all have received, that your community has received. In other words, he's saying, Just because these teachers and leaders left your community does not mean that you don't have anything to guide you. That you are okay because the Holy Spirit has anointed the baptized community. And the baptized community that has the Spirit can trust that the Spirit will keep them anchored in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Who Jesus is and what he's done. And we can have confidence in that. As verse 27 continues, his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So how do you have confidence rather than shame when Jesus comes again? Well, you can have confidence by knowing that the baptized community is guided by the Spirit And the Spirit will keep the baptized community faithful to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So do you want to meet the coming of Jesus with confidence? Then abide in a community that keeps reminding you about Jesus. That he is fully God. That he is fully man. That he is the only Savior of mankind. And that he is coming again. 
Abide in the community whose proclamation is, Jesus is Lord, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And don't leave that community. Because that community is the one that the Spirit is persevering. Abide in the community that keeps reminding you about Jesus. So, first, we learn that we are to abide in the Apostles' message. Second, we learn that we are to abide in Him by abiding in the baptized community. And thirdly, lastly, we learn that we are to abide in Him by abiding in the miraculous birth. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now here, John gets at something that is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, but also very misunderstood. See, most folks out there, if you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? They would say something like, well, I'm trying to become one. I'm seeking to, to, to become one. Uh, that I become a child of God by acting like a child of God. That I become a Christian by acting like a Christian. Uh, that my practicing righteousness is what actually makes me acceptable to God. But I want you to, to note something. Verse 29 does not say, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness will be born... Of God. Verse 29 says that you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. The analogy is birth. And let me ask you a question. How many of you chose to be born? Think back to that time when you chose to be born. You remember? I have a friend who tells me that he remembers the womb. I don't believe him. I do not believe him. How many of you chose to be born? Or, or let me ask you another way. Um, what accolades, what resume, what achievements did you present your parents to get them to birth you? How many did you give them? Did you say, look, I'm doing all these things. I would really fit in this family. Well, so can I please be born now? See, the analogy that John has is of, of birth. It's It's absurd. See, while you're, you are and what you may do, while who you are and what you may do, it may be the result of being born of your parents. It is not its cause. It could never be its cause. I was in the gym yesterday, and um, this, uh, this fella in uh, a class that I was in, he saw my daughter and I come in and said, oh, you have a daughter, and I was like, I have a daughter. And he said, she got your red hair. I said, yes, she got my red hair. And then uh, this other lady approached me who was, wanted to strike up a conversation about this. And so she's like, oh, my dad had red hair, but I didn't get red hair. And your daughter got red hair. And what's her name? And I'd like to meet her. And that, So it was a little bizarre, but I went with it. And she said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go peek in the, the children's area and, and see her. And I was like, okay. So I, um, she was nice enough. Uh, if you're here, you were very nice. But we were, you know, you never know with people and kids these days. So we're walking, uh, we're walking out and she looks in and she sees Neve, my daughter, and she looks and she says, 
Oh yeah, spotted her immediately. She takes after you. Uh, and that's true. You know, we, we often take after our parents in many respects. You know, Neve has another way of putting it. Uh, Neve uh, will often say, I gave daddy my red hair. I gave daddy my red hair. And I, I don't know if she's got her words confused or the ideas confused, um, but it's just backwards, isn't it? I gave daddy my red hair. No, you didn't give me your red hair. I gave you my red hair, but we'll, we'll go with it. But it's as backwards as that sounds. It's, it's just as backwards when we think that anyone who practices righteousness, that they practice righteousness in order to become born of God, rather than they practice righteousness because they are born of God. See, God is righteous, and if you live like your father, then that is confirmation that you were born of him, that you are his child. And that's what John wants you to know. Shame, we said, is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. And how will it be when God returns? in the person of Jesus Christ. What is his disposition going to be towards his children? That of embrace. Of welcoming embrace because you belong to him. And any righteousness that characterizes your life is only further evidence that you are his child. You are the child of your father. Verse 28, now little children, abide in him. You are his child. And you can have confidence that when he returns, he's going to rush to you and welcome you as beloved in the beloved, as a son or a daughter in the son. You know, I was... um, I was trying to figure out wh- what illustration I would use to, uh, to illustrate this. Thinking of happy reunions, right? And uh, parents and children. And I started to think about our, um, our friends who were in the Air Force. And we, um, I, I preached and ministered in a church where or a lot of uh, people in the Air Force. And I started to realize like, how long they were gone from their families. You know, three to eight months at a time. And sometimes both of the parents were in the Air Force and they didn't have them go at the same time uh, because that wouldn't be good with kids, but they had them go at separate times so the parents didn't get to see each other sometimes for double that because they didn't overlap. And, uh, And I said, that sounds horrible. I said, well, at least we're not in the Army where it's 12 to 16 months, Right? Could you imagine being away from your your kids for that long? Many people can. Many people do. So I started to think about like soldiers returning home from when they were on assignment. And and I did what we all do when we start to think about things. I I Googled it. And the YouTube videos came up. And then I just sat in my office and like, I had my illustration, but I was just like crying. And then I was just like, I'm going to watch another one of those. So I like kept clicking, like I just kept doing that through. So this, this sermon took a little bit longer to prepare 
and a lot more Kleenex uh, because I was just sitting like watching uh, the ways in which these soldiers often would surprise their kids. There was this one where this little girl, uh, it, was, um, it was her birthday, and she's reading this poem, and she's gone, you can tell, on the scavenger hunt, and it's the end of the scavenger hunt, and it's like, you've waited a long time, uh, you know, you've written every day, and, uh, and all this other stuff, and says, and now at long last, you know, turn around. That did not rhyme. That was not the poem. But it rhymed, it was cute, and she turns around, and there's the dad, and she runs to him, and the dad is just like bawling, and, uh, and I'm bawling. And, um, and I'm bawling because I'm, I'm a dad, but I was also, I was moved because I'm a child. I was moved because I'm a child of my father. I'm a child of my Father in heaven who is going to come and embrace me that way and cover my shame. And I can be ready and know that when he comes, I can have confidence that he will embrace me like that because of everything that he has done in Christ and by the Spirit. Uh, that, that is how we have confidence when he comes again. We abide in him, in his promise, in his community, and even in the work that he has done to make us, to call, uh, to make us his sons and daughters. You see, none of the things that I talked about are things that you really do. It's reveling in all that God has done. That's how you stay confident. God, I do pray that you would deepen in us a confidence for your return, to develop in us a longing for it, so that when he appears, we might not shrink back in shame, but we may be confident of your love for us. We pray that as you prepare us for the table, that would, you would use even that time to embolden us and make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen.